Hi, I'm Phoebe Lovett and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I speak to big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode of the series is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can find at public-library.online. And if you enjoy the episode, I'd really appreciate if you could like, subscribe and share this podcast with a friend. Thank you for listening. My guest today is the writer, curator and broadcaster, Lou Stoppard. Not long after completing her degree at Oxford University and MA at Central St. Martins, Lou was made editor of Nick Knight's pioneering fashion platform, Show Studio, where she became known for her in-depth live interviews with the likes of Kanye West and Wolfgang Tillmans. Since then, Lou has written for The New Yorker, Aperture and The New York Times, among many other titles, edited books on iconic fashion partnerships and the allure of swimming pools for Rizzoli, and curated exhibitions at London Somerset House and the Het New Institute in Rotterdam. I really enjoy Lou's curious, wide-ranging approach to her work, and it was a pleasure to learn more about the ideas and inspirations that have shaped her career. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Lou. Hi, how are you? I'm great, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Good. Where, yeah. where am I speaking to you today? So I'm in London. Um, I just got back from a work trip, actually. I was in Paris for a week. Mm. Um, but now I'm back in London and I'm in my studio, which is in East London. So it's where I come and try, often fail, but try and write and work. It's funny because one of my questions on my list was actually going to be, I, was, I mean, I was going to warm up a bit before I went for this one, but like, do you like writing? Um, when it feels good, I mm. like it. But when it doesn't come naturally, it's the, like one of the worst feelings in the world. And I just hate that thing where you're just, your your brain just isn't, isn't engaging in the way that you want it to or the words. I mean, I, I know what I need to do in those situations. Like one of them is just actually getting to your desk and being there and doing the work. I think it's really easy to procrastinate when you're in those moods. And also reading always helps. As soon as you read something good, you just it makes you want to sort of start again. Mm. But yeah, sometimes I'm like, why do I have this job? Like, wouldn't I be so much happier if I, you know, worked like also just like worked with other people, like friends of mine who have jobs where they work for like a company or they work in an office and they're mm. like having a nice time with their colleagues and like going for lunch with their colleagues and yeah. stuff. And then I'm just on my own all day. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Sometimes no. I'm just like, what am I doing? But. absolutely it's such a weird lifestyle and I think people don't really I mean I don't write anywhere near as much as you do but so, you know it's quite a lot of my day-to-day is still writing and um, I think people just don't understand what a weird little world you, you're in when when you write and you mm. and like you're just spending all day I mean I start I'm sitting at home a lot of the time and I, I feel absolutely insane like yeah I do think quite a lot about uh, the role it has in your sort of um I guess in, in, in the way that your sort of your personality and your mental health develops, because I think writing, like it involves putting yourself in a state where you are overthinking. Mm. And like most sort of treatments for any forms of sort of like anxiety or depression, or even just if you're having a tough week, people are like, you know, try not to overthink it. Get on there. But then the premise of being a writer is to sit and literally That's overthink so real. things. So like, just being I never thought about like that. Sometimes... People always like, you're in your head too much. I'm like, yeah, I mean, no, yeah, that's where job. I have to live. I have to live in here, unfortunately, <laughs> even though it's quite unpleasant environments for a large amount no, of time. Um, anyway, sorry, I kind of jumped ahead there. Um, but yesterday um, I was speaking to a younger woman and she, sort of said, she's, she was talking about writing and she said, well, you know, I think it's just because I've never had any training that that's why I find it so hard. And I've never had any writing training. Have you ever had any writing training? Have you just learned on the job? I would say I've learned on the job. I did do a master's at um, Central St. Martin's in fashion. It, like, the course that I did was called the MA mm-hmm. Fashion. And the pathway that I was on was a journalism, like communications mm. pathway. Um, but I actually got a job, my first job at Show Studio, like a term into that master. So I did complete mm. it. And I did all the assignments and stuff, but I felt quite, um, 
I was just already working mm. while I was doing it. So, but yeah, I'm lucky to have done that master's. I think it definitely, um, my BA was in history. So Same. it was sort of, I mean, it was a lot of writing. Yeah. Ah, a fellow historian. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt quite lucky, um, I guess, to sort of have a slight transition out of that academic form of writing where you're like mm. writing essays into, I guess, writing articles and and um and yeah and writing mm-hmm. journalism mm-hmm. And, and I mean even though in some ways I've gone full circle because a lot of what I do now is like writing essays for exhibitions and books and that kind of thing yeah but, you kind of span like you've got sort of like your criticism sort of editorial stuff and then obviously you do your curation your editing there's a lot there's a lot mm-hmm. going on um before we get into all of that I actually did want to sort of ask you a little bit because I I, I obviously have researched you, but I couldn't find too much information about your upbringing or um, sort of like your background. Where, where did you grow up? So I grew up not far from London, yeah. but it felt very far from London at the time. So it's quite weird now because I often say to people, if I'm like abroad for work, I often say I'm from mm. London. Um, but it did not feel like that. So I grew up um, between... Well, the, the best way to identify it is Luton because everyone knows yeah. the airport. So I was born in Luton, but I didn't actually grow up in Luton. I grew up in, um, well, we moved, to, but I grew up in a small, two little small sort of town villages between Luton and right. Redford. Um, so it's north of London, um, but not by very far, mm. um, which is what's strange because now everyone who lives in London goes to Luton Airport mm. all the time to get an easy jet flight when you go on holiday and everyone laughs about how it's like the grossest place in in the world um and that's what everyone identifies um Luton as being as being like this airport um and they think of it as being really close to London but I just felt like it felt we didn't hang out in London when I was growing up um it wasn't something you know you wouldn't get the train up on like a Friday night on a night out it felt very far in that mm. sense like you were we're not on a tube line for example you'd have to get the train um so it's quite interesting because I remember really distinctly the feeling of moving to London after my after my um after university to start my master's and realizing just how intimidated I found people who'd grown up in cities particularly London like they just seemed so intelligent all the people I met and so sort of it's like they'd had time to be kind of already become cynical Mm. about things because they'd grown up around like just like amazing culture, like music and museums and that kind of thing. And I felt like deeply, deeply provincial when I moved, which I've later kind of come to see as like an asset because it makes you try really Mm -hmm. hard. Um, But I definitely, um, yeah, definitely that was a real moment. And I still sort of have this, um, kind of fascination with people who grew up in London I have friends who you know like they grew up here they were born here went to school here and I always think of them as kind of like somehow more savvy than I will ever be I don't know about that I mean I grew up in London and um I just I mean obviously I'm I'm really grateful to to have grown up in London not because I think everywhere else is irrelevant and uncultured but just because it does give you a really sort of unique experience of the world as a child you know in form in a formative time in your mm. life you're having quite a you well not that unique there's what nine million people here but you know what I'm saying it's, it is a, it is a cultural education um but equally it does it does make you jaded I think you know I like when you when I read something about like when you go up in a major city sort of you expect the world to come to you and it's almost like um it's almost like an analogy of like being born rich or something that you don't really have anything to chase or you feel like you don't have anything to chase whereas I feel like my friends who've come to London and built lives for themselves here have had you know been enjoyed it a bit more maybe you know been able to extract more from it I think you're definitely right with the thing of like appreciating culture more and just taking that stuff like I think I was very I think this was sort of the particulars of, of of my family as well like my we weren't really a particularly like sort of artistic household mm. so like these are my parents are um I mean there weren't sort of like lots of books in the house we didn't really go to museums and exhibitions like this this is not to sort of um criticize my parents in any way like and you know they do they do read but it, you know we weren't like a literary household having interesting yeah. conversations about books or going to 
you know, museums and exhibitions frequently. Um, yeah. So I think that was also quite interesting for me because, like, I mean, now I describe myself as like a writer and a curator. Yeah. And people often ask, like, why didn't you study curating? Yeah. But truthfully, like, I didn't. I didn't know what that was. Like, I didn't even yeah. know that was a job until I moved to London. So I think, I think that was something that was sort of really fascinating for me, like the cultural education you get when you move to a to a city and all these different possibilities that sort of open up for you and career paths that I just didn't didn't really know about and and it, it was quite nice learning on the job in that sense and sort of being able to sort of just have this whole world open up for me yeah um, and I suppose now with the work that you do sort of having an outsider perspective on in some ways on culture not saying that there was no culture where you grew up but I presume it was a slightly different landscape to like being in London you know you it's just very sort of like I guess it felt in some ways very small and and very you know I had like a very sort of typical middle class Mm. upbringing where there's quite sort of set ideas of what is um what you strive Mm. for and what you want and it wasn't I didn't really meet people who diverged from those kind of paths it was quite kind of I think one thing actually that was really, really formative for me, um, I think about this all the time, my my parents had quite a strict rule where we had to work, like my sister mm. and I, they were really big on having yeah. jobs, um, which I think is partly because of their setup. So my mum my had done higher education and she she's very, um, had done really well. My mum, she's retired now, but she was a mm. doctor. Whereas my dad had not kind of clicked with school. It just wasn't for him and he'd left think after his I don't know how many he completed but around the time of his GCSEs he left and then he got a job so they'd always had this idea that you worked from quite young um so we both me and my sister and I had to have jobs and I I got a job as a waitress from about sort of 14 and I did it right the way through until I left university um and it just had such a massive impact Mm. on me and I think sort of was really formative in why I wanted to become a writer because it became I became just like fascinated by people and like watching these different scenes um like sort of play out and unfold Mm. and I loved that feeling just like because you sort of have this amazing role when you're a waitress because you're sort of you can see everything and you can kind of move freely through through a space and kind of eavesdrop on things and you're sort of in control yeah. in a way, which is quite interesting. You can really like decide if someone's going to have a yeah. good night or a bad night. <laughs> but I just, I just loved that job. I loved it. I loved the free, like the freedom I felt like it gave me because, you know, earning your own money is a really empowering thing when you're young, but also just, yeah, like spend like the, the act of observing people, I think was not something that I'd thought that much mm-hmm. about. And then I realized that that's what I loved about that job was just the constant observation mm-hmm. of people and sensing moods. And it, it, it's, it's something that it's probably actually my favorite job I've yeah. ever had because it just, it just taught me what I liked about the world and what I found interesting. And I loved, I just loved um, the people yeah. watching and I think that was probably one of the most formative things that I had when I was growing but, up. But you went um, to you went to, you went to Oxford, right? You went to study history at Oxford, yeah. which I assume is pretty hardcore academically. Um, yeah, it was. It was a weird place. I think at the time I really threw myself into it. Looking back, I think it just wasn't probably the right fit mm. for me as a place. And it's, it, I mean, it's really easy to say that now. And to say, like, sort of, um, you know, like, there's a lot of critique of Oxbridge mm-hmm. in the press. Yeah. So it's kind of easy to jump on that bandwagon and be like, oh, it's really abhorrent as a place. There's all these kind of hierarchies and um, forms of exclusion that are really damaging. But I think, I think, you know, I think that is a lot of that description is quite accurate. And I think, I think there were aspects of it that I found. Um, just quite unpleasant I think it was I mean I I, it wasn't an overall negative experience I think it taught me how to think in a lot of ways and it probably taught me a lot of qualities that have been incredibly helpful in my career but are qualities that you can see why we lived in such a messed up country which is like to be very very confident talking about things that I actually probably don't know that much about being able to like 
hold my own in a room. It, it probably taught me how to carry myself with the confidence of a, you know, eat an educated right. white man, <laughs> which has been really I would imagine a useful skill. Considering <laughs> <laughs> we live yeah, in a country kind of run gross. by them, you know, so. Exactly. But I mean, so the, the academic side of it was really fascinating. And I did meet some amazing kind of tutors yeah. and experts who, um, it was just like real privilege to sort of spend time with them and be in their lectures and tutorials. But I think as a place, um, yeah, I have sort of mixed feelings looking back on mm. it. I, I was really proud to have got in there at the time. It felt like a very yeah. big deal. So, and I, yeah. there's still a part of me that has that kind of like wide eyed, like, Oh my God, I got into Oxford kind of feeling, mm. um, which I think is, I sort of like the naivety of that feeling that I had. Um, mm. But yeah, it's not a place that I definitely came away from without criticisms of. And it was, it was, it was a useful education because it was the first time that I learned about. Um, yeah, it was, it was probably the first time that I sort of really thought heavily about just styles of communications, the way that people can kind of drown out someone else's perspective mm. just through sort of like confidence or and it, it is a very misogynistic environment mm. like the college I well, actually no I shouldn't speak for the whole university the college I went to mm. was because it's a collegiate system um you know the boys were sort of much more um just much louder and were kind of rewarded mm. for that and um I think a lot of the girls there sort of through I guess through an attempt to sort of just get on with it would sort of kind of learn to work within that system and to kind of almost like enable it because it was the only way to get there. And so it's, I mean, I, I think, you know, at the time I was like 18, so I don't think I like thought about all of this. So um, in the same, in the ways that I do now, but looking back, I think it was an education into certain sort of power structures and, and sort of balances and habits yeah. of thinking that have definitely kind of shaped well, that I've seen throughout my career, but also that have just shaped the world sure. that we live in. Um, then you had like... Yeah. Sorry, that was no, quite no, a random answer. Not at all. <laughs> then you had like a pendulum swing and you went to CSM, which... Yeah. So I had this like crisis at the end of uni where like everyone was going off to become like management consultants or like barristers or I don't know what like those kind of jobs and I sort of briefly thought about that and I was like oh maybe I should like go work at McKinsey mm. or maybe I should go work at Slaughter and May and then I just I had always had this desire to be a writer which partly came from the sort of as I mentioned like the just this love for observation and for sort of like watching people and trying to work out why they yeah. did things and it sort of just felt like a sort of last ditch attempt to not become like not have my life just completely be um predetermined and sort of not follow this very typical route that it felt like was kind of really open to you if you've gone to one yeah. of those kind of universities where you you know that you're going to sort of succeed and you're going to be like you're going to be on the grad scheme and then you'll be I'd like to have your whole life written out at 21 it's yeah. so too depressing for words I mean, for me anyway <laughs> Yeah. I also like, I don't mean this to sound like really like, oh, look at me. I sort of walked away from it. So I also just think I would have been genuinely yeah. terrible right, at right, those right. jobs and probably would have, you know, yeah. immediately um, been asked to leave. So yeah, I went to St. Martin's and, um, and started this, uh, started doing a master's. Yeah. in And I, I think at that point, I mean, my mother's actually not remotely interested. Well, no, that's really mean to say she's not really interested in fashion because it makes it sound like she's like terribly dressed. <laughs> She's not, but she's she's not into like clothes or magazines. Like my mum has never bought a copy of like Vogue yeah. or anything like that in her life. But my dad did read GQ when I was yeah. growing up, um, and I used to read his issues of GQ. And it, it there was sort of this this thing that had always fascinated me about like magazines and like the sort of the writing and the pictures and I didn't really know what it was so that was probably the kind of the impetus for the St Martin's like application I thought oh, I'll go work for a magazine like I'll be yeah. a writer and like oh I love I, I thought I really liked fashion like quite quickly I realized I didn't I actually liked images right. um but well no that's I, I do like some aspects of fashion I find like certain designers work mm. really fascinating really important 
so yeah, I ended up at Central St. Martins and then, yeah, it sort of, I sort of fell into quite a lot of things that have like shaped my career since then. One of which was meeting Nick Knight, the photographer and starting working at Show Studio. How did you meet him? Um, so I applied for an internship at Show yeah. Studio. I had this kind of, um, I was really concerned about not being able to get a job when the master's yeah. finished, probably to a level that was actually just ridiculous because, you know, like it, it, I was like driving myself crazy with anxiety yeah. about it when, you know, I was in a more fortunate financial position than some other people who were there. I, like my parents were helping me out, which was an incredibly fortunate thing. So I don't, I don't know why I was sort of treating myself as if. Probably that, probably that I Oxford was, education. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, it was it was quite mad, but I really like convinced myself that I was like screwed yeah. and like I really was like not going to get a job and I had to, and you know I wasn't going to be. Able, I think there was a part of me that was like how like London was so expensive. And I was like, how am I going to afford to live here? Like I need to like build yeah. a life. And I, I just a, a felt realistic this kind concern of real... to be honest, still a concern. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly, exactly. So I um I applied for an internship quite quickly when I started. And then I started interning at Show Studio and there were sort of a few changes that happened in that short time. One of which was the then kind of editor, um, a guy called Alex Fury, left and they kept me, so they offered me a job and they were going to hire a more senior person as well to be the kind of editor. And then I was going to be a kind of editorial assistant. And that just never happened. Like I I just sort of took on, I mean, it was kind of mad because I was like, 21 yeah. or 22 mm. and I really like had no idea what I was doing but Nick's he was a really like generous boss in the sense of he gave me a lot of time to learn yeah. my job and a lot of um it was very empowering to work mm. for in the sense of he just constantly made me feel like I could do things right. like interview these really kind of famous people within the fashion yeah. world I, like I could just do that it'd be yeah. fine um he was a really tough boss as well. Like he's like show studio is his life. He's completely obsessed yeah. with it. Um, like, I don't know if anyone, everyone listening would know what it is. Cause it is. Yeah. Quite- it's funny. Uh, that's, that's actually it's a good new. point. Yeah. It bears clarification. I mean, it's obviously been so influential and in many ways, like very much ahead of its time. And how would you describe like the mission mm. of show studio and, and how it operates? Well, it started as a platform for exploring like moving mm. image, fashion and moving image on the web. Um, which sounds like so obvious now, but it was started, you know, before YouTube. So the idea of even like putting film online was really, really innovative. And Nick um, began it as a way of, um, partly as a way, yeah, of exploring fashion film, but also I think as a way of sort of opening up the process of making fashion images. So a lot of what Show Studio did was kind of live streaming these photo shoots Mm. or having these live conversations. There's a lot of live media Mm. on it. and then there were sort of, um, you know, live workshops. There'd be live um, conversations. There'd be sort of reviews. It was a real sort of quite an odd experimental platform mm. that had had, you know, Nick had worked with some really brilliant people like Penny Martin before yeah. she went to The Gentleman was at Show Studio. Alex Fury's obviously been very successful as a fashion writer. He um, he was there. So Nick had a real amazing kind of um I for talent I guess and was very good at kind of fostering that talent yeah so yeah I worked there for quite a long time it was about six or seven years because mm. it was sort of an impossible job to leave because you could kind of do whatever you wanted yeah and it was the point where I sort of learned what I wanted to do so I I was working kind of as a writer and an editor mm. but I was working with images a lot because I was working with Nick so a lot of it was very visual and that was sort of the point where I realised that actually what I'd loved when I was reading like my dad's GQs was the photography, yeah. even though like a lot of the photography in GQ of that period was like decidedly mediocre. But like some of the shoots that were great, like it, it was that's what I had been drawn to. I was just fascinated by the photography and by the images. And it's sort of the point where I began working on a sort of project basis. So a lot of what we would do at Show Studio would be do like series or projects based around certain mm. themes um so it sort of allowed you to take a sort of curatorial right. yeah approach, I was gonna like, even though I was gonna are... ask you like how you began to transition into curation because I feel like I don't know I mean maybe um you you would say otherwise but to me like obviously working with imagery and working with the written word quite a different 
not many people have both the eye and the ear for both I'd say you know what I mean like most people can either Mm. deal with one or the other but obviously you can handle both mediums so that explains it like you started having honing this ability to curate images as well as create create imagery with words yeah I was I think it was and I have learned kind of subsequently like there are a lot of people who do work in that way but I think it's becoming more and more difficult because I think for young people like the pressure to specialize is really really intense and and also really pragmatic because you know it's so hard to get a job you're not going to like try out several different things so I think a lot of people don't kind of have these opportunities to work across things but you know if you think of like someone who I'm completely obsessed with is the the late writer Janet Malcolm Mm. who's predominantly known as a she's you know a a writer and a journalist but actually you know her writing on photography is is incredible and she's someone whose ability to engage kind of both from a sort of literary perspective and from a visual perspective and just as an amazing kind of writer and storyteller I've always found really fascinating and then there's people like Leanne Shapton who's always moved between kind of Mm. words and visuals so I sort of started to discover people like this and feel more yeah like where just I mean just liking being able to work in that way so being able to make an exhibition or edit a book of photography but also kind of yeah write in a sort of typical how did you more typical kind of journalist how did you find like I'm assuming that sort of like being in that show studio environment was probably the first time you'd really been immersed in like a fashion industry context. Is that, was that, would you say that's true? Yeah, that's definitely true. And how did you, fashion can be quite intimidating, you know, to a lot of people as an industry. And like, especially if you haven't necessarily grown up, as you say, being in London, being around quote unquote fashion people, going to all the parties, you know, knowing who, who, who's who, like, what was it like for you being with all these sort of like esteemed um, figureheads in, in the industry at such a young age? I mean, it was definitely very intimidating. Um, I think one thing that I learned quite quickly is like, and it's actually something, I think Penny Martin said it in someone's, I think I'm pretty sure it was Penny Martin in, in, in one of the interviews on show studio she was like, you know, some of the most intelligent people you will ever meet work within the fashion right. industry. And I think I did realise that very quickly, that, like, despite the sort of many predominantly sort of sexist criticisms that or stereotypes that exist in the mm. fashion industry, because it is a predominantly, like, women-dominated industry, it's very easy to treat it as very mm. frivolous. Like, despite all of those stereotypes, like, there are people who work within it who are absolutely mm. brilliantly yeah. intelligent and sensitive and sort of you know, have just an incredible kind yeah. of knowledge, um, whether it's of kind of, you know, in terms of imagery or like the history of design, like the history of um, of fashion, like there's so many kind of amazing people. Mm. And I, I think I did notice that quite quickly. Was there anyone that you met at that it, time that you were sort of like blown away by? I think I found a lot of the photographers really, really yeah. inspiring. Um, so people like Glenn Lutchford, who I've, worked with since on books um David Sims people like that I found I I found I I found them really just the way their minds worked and the way they saw pictures and Mm. things and and the references like the ability to kind of you know behind every image there would be sort of so much knowledge whether it was of sort of cinema or Mm. literature or what have you I I found that really really inspiring yeah I think that that's something that is Um, probably I mean obviously now you get these massive meaty profiles dedicated to fashion designers. So perhaps there's a bit more awareness now that not everyone's just like a bitchy, vapid, you know, gross person who only cares about what people look, that there's obviously many people, as you say, in the industry, it's artistry, right? It's like real artistry and it's just the medium they've chosen for the way that they want to talk about the world. Um, But Yeah, and like any industry has awful vapid yeah, people totally. in it you know whatever field you're in and actually like to be honest there was a side of me I think when I sort of moved away from fashion and um, when I left show studio where I probably was a little bit burnt out from the kind of the parties and the shows and like I, I just I'd never really gone to a lot of that stuff but it felt like such a big part of the job and I just didn't want to do that and I did start to sort of probably be a bit overly critical in my head of sort of some of the cultures yeah. of fashion and, and find it a bit but what I have realised subsequently is like, 
Yeah, just as I said, like every world has that. And my God, like the literary world is such a million mm. times worse. Like it's, it's really funny sometimes. I think like how I always sort of, it's very easy when you're in fashion to look at other worlds and think that they must be so much more deep and kind of meaningful. And yeah. actually, you know, like in a, a lot of the arts, it's people who are very obsessed with status and who, you know, and it's, I mean, it's the art really world itself, happen. truly a, a horror show for that kind of thing. Right? And to be honest, at least in fashion, the people are diverse. You're more likely to right. meet people of different sexualities, different ethnicities, people who are, you know, university educated, people who've been on the job assisting since yeah. they were teenagers. Like, yeah. at least there is an actual kind of plethora of people within that ne- industry, Nepo Baby which... HQ. Um, how do you feel yeah, about, you don't get that. You know, I think probably the first time I heard your name, somewhat predictably, apologies, is when you interviewed Kanye West and, and you know, that was 2015, I believe. How did you feel about being on camera? And, you know, I, I, I think that was a way that obviously Show Studio was pioneering that you would get a journalist and a, um, a, a fashion industry figure or, you know, someone influential in that world. In, what is, it was like a live broadcast, right, with, with live questions. Yeah, two hours. How, did two you enjoy hours, that? Like live interview. Um, yeah, I did. I did enjoy it. It was a very different time. Um, I think it'd be. I think a lot of the concerns that I think. I mean, maybe I was just too naive to like. I didn't worry too much about like my appearance right. or getting trolled or, or things that I think would probably be like really valid concerns yeah. now. I don't know. It's it become kind of, so much more brutal, hasn't it? I, to be honest, I can't, I'm sure I did, but I can't even remember if I had Instagram at that point. I'm sure I must have done, but I don't remember yeah. even thinking, yeah. like, what's going to... One thing I will say, though, is interviewing someone that famous, like, it is like dying. Because, you know, when someone dies and, like, everyone's like, RIP, I loved you, like, you know, sending mm. comments. Like, literally everyone I'd ever spoken to in my life got in touch with me so like ex-boyfriends like random people I went to school with were like oh my god I saw you interviewed Kanye like I realized like what it would be like if if one of my family members or friends had posted that I died on Facebook and people that I hadn't spoken to for years you know leave condolences in the way that you know sort of that sort of public grieving um uh, sort of sparks that sort of like um everyone sort of like wanting to share something mm. but it it was really mad that just that level of um exposure yeah exposure yeah, yeah that is probably how I'd define yeah. it but it was to be honest it was a really long time ago I think I was 24 yeah. 25 and I'm 32 now so it's something that I mean occasionally I'd say once a week I still get like a message on once a week is quite media. a lot <laughs> it's quite it happened eight years ago <laughs> I've got used like, to it okay, now, just, like, You know, it just is... several times a week, I'm banging off questions about Kanye. <laughs> That's bonkers. It was mad, yeah. though. It was yeah, really sorry. Um, I didn't, I didn't want to dwell too much. I just thought it was interesting. Like, you know, obviously I, I figured out that you must have been super young at the time. And, and yeah, it's just, it's a lot of exposure. I just wondered if you felt comfortable with it because a lot of um, people who write don't love being in front of a camera. But you strike me as someone who's quite extroverted. Would you say that that's true? Yeah, I think I am. And actually, that's one thing. If I think there's like a part of my career where I think I have like really like fumbled the bag, I think it is with broadcasting because it's something that I really Mm. loved. And it wasn't so much like the being on camera. Like I didn't want to ever be like, you know, a TV presenter Mm -hmm. or anything like that. But I loved the immediacy of of sort of broadcast. There's nothing to really hide behind. Mm. And it's so different to writing where you can sort of shape a narrative subsequently like you know with the broadcasting I love that moment where sort of the mask would slip and you'd get something new from someone because when you interview people that are really famous or have done a lot of press like they do repeat it's themselves so boring. And one it's, thing, it's, it is I mean, it is and it's a it's challenge, a challenge. That, yeah that's a better way of putting it I used to interview celebs quite a lot and I mean yeah, it was on me, really, the fact that they ended up being invariably quite boring interviews. But when you've got 45 minutes with someone and you've got a record, you know, recording them, there's only so much you can, <laughs> you can do. As, a, as you say, maybe the format of sh- with the show studio interviews was a little bit because they were long form because you were in this different setting. Mm-hmm. Maybe it like gave a bit of energy that led to more interesting results. 
Definitely. I think I, I was very lucky with the lens. Like, it wasn't like I was trying to get, you know, like a three minute video. Mm. And it, it was at that moment where there was like a rush for online mm. content. So every other kind of like use focused or fashion focused publication, like, I don't know, like Days, ID, those kind of platforms, like they were kind of going more towards that kind of very tightly edited, quite chopped, mm. short content, because that's what was and is popular yeah. online. But I think because because of the sort of eccentric premise of Show Studio, where it's kind of you know funded by Nick and he doesn't really care if something gets less views, if he thinks it's really good, he's mm. fine with it. So it meant that yeah, we would do these like you know hour long or two hour long interviews. I guess now um, that model has so ironically often- become you know you've got this sort of like dichotomy where you've got the super you know the TikTok the viral TikTok that lasts thirty seconds or whatever, and then you've got like what's his name, Joe Rogan, Lex Friedman, all these podcast dudes, and they are nearly always dudes, alas, predictably, doing like two, three, four-hour interviews. Um, so mm. remember where you where you saw the format first, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. I do, I miss it. Sometimes I think, I mean, I've done bits of broadcasting since, like I made like a documentary for Radio 4 and did bits like that, but sometimes I think like, you just, I was so young when I was there and I've never been someone who has actually been particularly good at like strategizing when it comes to a career. Like I'm not a remotely like entrepreneurial. Right. That's funny that you say that because like, I was going to, I literally had it written down to ask you about that. Like sort of, obviously you've had, you know, you've done so many things in your career. You've worked as a curator, editor, writer, all these things that we mentioned. Um, you know, to some people that would seem a bit overwhelming or, you know, and as you say, there is a massive pressure now to sort of hone a quote unquote personal brand and stick to it and find a way to communicate it via social media. Like, how, would you say that you've followed your, like, how have you made your career decisions? For example, what, why did you decide to leave Show Studio and what was the next project that you took on? I think I left because it, it was just time to leave. I think I was, I'd actually kind of burnt out. I was, so exhausted we were broadcasting so much and like it was just time for someone else to I felt like I'd done what I could do there and it was it was a really tough time because like it was always going to be the best job in the world (laughs) so when and and I loved working with Nick like he he is just a a truly like exceptional person so I found that tough but yeah I think I just needed to do something Mm. else and I was really profoundly aware that I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I felt quite um, sort of not knowing what I wanted to do was quite clarifying because I realised that there, it showed that there was a lot of stuff that I knew I didn't want to do. And that's why I felt like I was kind of in free fall because I was looking at the kind of jobs that most people would aspire to go to having been editor of you know, a fashion platform like editing a magazine or something like that and I just did not want Mm. to do that like I didn't have any aspirations to go and kind of I don't know be features editor of a glossy magazine and try and rise up or it and I think I sort of had invented in my head this idea of a sort of purity in writing that I felt like the fashion industry didn't have because there are you know there's some amazing fashion writers and there is some amazing fashion writing that's that's been commissioned and produced but increasingly most fashion writing now it you know it is relatively mediocre and is quite sort of led by the commercial concerns of the title I don't mean everything like there's a lot of brilliant kind of um journalists out there doing really good stuff um but I think I sort of got it in my head that I wanted to sort of be a writer writer like I don't think I really knew Mm. what that was at the time but sort of and I knew that I probably couldn't do that writing about fashion um and I think there was a part so there was a part of that where I thought like I want to sort of do something different and I think there was also I I had just started kind of curating things in physical spaces so I did a show about fashion and the teenage boy Mm. called Mad About the Boy that was tiny like literally the smallest show in the world (laughs) like people always like asked me about it and I was like it's literally it was like it's like the size of the desk that I sat at (laughs) so small but I loved it and I think I'd slightly got the bug there of like doing things in more physical spaces because I'd spent so long on an online platform so yeah there were kind of a few competing different motivations and 
yeah, I, I, I'd already been freelancing a bit. I was writing for, I think I was already writing for like the FT yeah. a bit and writing for certain books. Increasingly, I was doing things like that. So yeah, it sort of became, mm. it was just my type, time for a change. I and think. I say this with all respect, but it's like looking at your body of work since the writing you've done, which is um, super like interesting, but it's like you don't really have a one singular beat you know that your your you your writing goes in lots of directions like how do you how do you decide what what you want to write about like how do you know something's a story rather than just sort of like a vague moment of interest hmm. so i feel like i write about something really specific oh, okay, yet really broad which is which is weird people doing weird okay. things but with great passion. Okay. <laughs> but you're right. There is a, there's absolutely nothing that ties my writing together. I write about photography. I write like reported pieces about like, you know, certain industry. Like, yeah, you're completely right. It is quite a broad. You know, I don't, and I don't mean that I think, at all as a, an insult. Like it's much more interesting. I think some writers, you kind of, as good as they are at what they write about, you kind of know where it's going from the minute you start writing it. Yeah. Whereas, um, no, I take it as a compliment that you say that. Um, it, I think it just shows, like, in my own head, like, the lack of, um, yeah, just I think the, the sort of oppressive lack of ability to focus, which has really defined my career. But, yeah, no, I I think I always knew I wanted to write about the arts, but I, I, I'm not actually a great critic. Like, I, I read friends who write, or not just friends, like, I read... Um, I read sort of, you know, literary criticism and I'm always like very impressed by people who can do that mm. really well. And then when friends send me pieces who are like, you know, critique exhibitions or whatever, like I'm always kind of in awe. It's not something that I'm naturally that good at, I don't think. So I knew I didn't want to be a critic. Um, so, yeah, I sort of just, I was just kind of interested in, probably because I'd done all these interviews at Show Studio, I, I liked reporting. Mm. I really liked going places and meeting weird people eccentric fascinating interesting people and then doing stories about them um and I think where I did still write about fashion or photo or art it was kind of how it intersected with society like how it sort of said something about the times that we're living in um but yeah the the range of people I write for is quite broad because like I do a lot for like Aperture which is a photo publication but then I'll do you know things for like ft magazine where it'll be like a long reported feature on i mean the last thing i did for them or maybe not the last thing a recent thing i did for them was on um serving legal right yeah i saw that that's why i was like wow this woman goes all over the place i'm here for it yeah yeah i mean that was just like that came from like a conversation with a friend where we were talking about like just I guess like how kind of camp and theatrical it is that process of like you've been served Mm. and I wanted to know I love topics where it's something that everyone knows but no one actually knows the process behind it so like everyone knows what serving is exactly like you see it in movies or whatever but I liked the idea of and that ended up being a very like relevant piece because one of the stories within that one of the kind of examples was a um was a, the serving of an oligarch right. that had taken place at the a Russian oligarch that had taken place at the White Chapel Gallery, and by the time the piece came out, like everyone was talking about oligarchs yeah. and Putin had invaded Ukraine. So it's it's kind of weird sometimes how these pieces that feel quite niche can end up having a more kind of a, a sort of a, a resonance that you didn't think would exist. Mm. Um, but I think that um, you know to have a beat of, of weird people doing weird things or eccentric people doing eccentric things. I think you described it as somewhere else. That's like a very necessary beat right now because, um, our culture is just flattened so much. And like for me personally, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, hence why, you know, these stories get commissioned is like, you want to hear about the weirdos and the people who still approach their work in a very idiosyncratic way and have very bizarre processes. Like to me, those people, I feel like they're a dying breed and whenever I read about them like I'm simultaneously like inspired and sort of relieved to know that they exist and they're out there like doing their weird shit not just making like Instagram grid template you know like that that whole I I think I, I mentioned that I wanted to talk to you about your tweet about sort of avoiding the oppressive Instagram aesthetic in your home and I feel like that's something I'm always trying to counteract in my mind like 
how I don't, mm. my brain just doesn't come this become this place that is alarmingly sort of like shaped by constant feed, you know, whatever feed it mm. is, Twitter, Instagram, news feed, whatever, whatever. How do you, how do you like, how do you stay weird yourself? <laughs> Not to say you are weird, but <laughs> <laughs> seems like that's something you would, I you know, that- try to cultivate, right? <laughs> no, definitely. I think I'm like really genuinely like moved by like eccentricity and obsessive like I find I I love people who sort of exist outside of kind of the norms of things and who do things with sort of great interest and obsession like there's always been something that I've been really fascinated by and probably does actually link back to not growing up in a kind of creative home because you know my sister she's a vet and she is like absolutely mad and one of the most eccentric people that I've Mm. met but in this kind of works in this industry that is very to me must be like very like I'm like that's like a yeah. job like you could like kill someone's dog like it's like the stakes are really yeah. high for that to, 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 to seems to me but she's so eccentric so I think I've always had quite a wide understanding of what it means to be kind of just the different ways of kind of being unusual because I think there's also like this weird thing online with this like performance of right. where I think it happened when everyone was kind of being vulnerable yeah. you know, there was that thing where it became very um profitable for uh people who were very online to kind of like talk about like just everyone was sort of performing authenticity mm. and performing um these things and I think I, I think I found that like a little bit I don't know it's, it's weird I don't really know where I'm going with this I, I think it's weird because I like I probably am a very online person in the way that like being a journalist you have to be like you are kind of contacting sources you're using twitter like i do browse instagram like any other sort of millennial but I- i've never really engaged with that online culture mm. and i don't feel i think i i don't feel very sort of attached mm. to it in that sense of like which is probably in a way also not particularly strategic as a writer because there's a lot of writers who really sort of manage to kind of make their name through engaging with the kind of the the debates that are going on that week and they sort of yeah I'm just not I'm not really good at that I think I just don't have that kind of brain I think it's Um, I mean I think that that I'd say that's your strength though no like that that you're not that you're not going for the obvious stories you're not engaging with the discourse as you've already seen it play out you know like you're finding these little weird random stories people moments that are under or or haven't yet been exposed and that's like that that to me is like a real skill now for anyone to to not find their story in their in their algorithm well I don't know if it's I think I don't know if it's a strength I think I just um, I just suck at writing opinion pieces as well so like it's just not something that I could do and like I I definitely did have this kind of feeling also maybe as I was kind of taking stock of being a freelancer like a few years ago feeling like there was a certain style of writing that I think a lot of young women were Mm. doing and I didn't know how much of that was choice or how much of it was like a sort of pragmatic response to sort of the market and like what they could get commissioned to write. But there was a lot of kind of confessional writing and a lot of, um, I mean, people, there's people who've written sort of interesting things about this, but sort of, you know, writing about dating experiences yeah. and sort of, it, it just, it just didn't, it didn't appeal to me being in that, sort of in that arena and I felt quite I mean I felt quite keen to not have to do that kind of stuff which maybe did actually push me more into like photo Mm. world and like slightly sort of different um I think I think it's something that also maybe exists quite a lot in the UK because there's quite a lot of youth publishing Mm. here so it's kind of I think you see a lot of those articles here as well and I mean it's not to say that some of those pieces aren't good or interesting to read, but it's just, I think I felt very, um, I didn't want to feel like I had to be a certain kind of, a certain kind of, I I didn't want to write about a certain kind of thing. To me, that felt like as limiting as having to write about clothes all the time. Totally. I suppose Um, our culture now is one that rewards, you know, sort of oversharing 
in any capacity, whether that, you know, that's being online, sharing all your life and becoming an influencer off the back of it or doing it in writing, you know, it's sort of like thirsty for the intimate details of people's lives. And understandably you and a lot of other people don't really want to partake. Right. Um, so I think that that's totally valid, but it's, it's interesting that like I've had similar conversations with myself. Oh, I should be putting more of myself out there. And then it's like, really, should I, or, or is that just like the, the pressure of, of media as it exists right now? And as you say, I think in the States, cause obviously I was living in the U S for a long time. I met you actually there and, um, you've got all these, you know, the New Yorker and, and all these titles that sort of don't, they don't, they don't hinge on that kind of, uh, writing at all. And maybe that's why you've been drawn to them. Would you say? Yeah, de- there was definitely an aim for me to write. I had this desire, which sounds, to be honest, quite sort of like small-minded and um, simplistic. But I definitely had a desire to write for American publications. Mm. I think that was something that happened after I went freelance. I felt like the quality was better. I liked, you know, the idea of like fact checkers yeah. and. So writing for like the New York Times and and the New Yorker, they they were real ambitions of mine, and I felt very proud yeah. to do that. Um, and I think it taught me a great deal. I think it made me just a better writer. Yeah. Um, I mean, they actually. I've never written I, for any of those titles, but from my understanding, you know, you get you get time, you get proper compensation, and you get proper edits, which is unfortunately something that is increasingly lacking in British media. And that's no shade to British editors; they don't have, they're not getting paid enough, and they don't get given enough time to to edit you know as thoroughly as as those US publications at least from my limited experience I mean I haven't been editorial journalist for a long time but that I think quite quickly I was like, I'm not sure how I'm going to get better because it's just like this yeah. is fine yeah here's 50 quid yeah if someone just puts it online exactly as you yeah. rate it you're like well that that was definitely it I think it's a really valid and it's it's hard I think for for young writers because it's as you say, it's not it's not to dismiss the work of yeah. editors because they're so yeah. stretched and they're trying to do so much stuff, but it's really hard to get yeah. better because if, if you don't have someone who can... I mean, I remember... I can't remember which piece it was, but I remember... Oh, I wrote a piece for The New Yorker about Love Island and I remember my editor calling me about one word. Wow. And she just wanted to talk about like whether it was the best... It was a bit where I'd like, defined how English people see Americans and how Americans see English people... And it was like a short sentence, so that like every word had to really like be the right, like completely the right word. And she just rang me and was like, oh, "I just wanted to talk about it really quickly." And I just remember being like, "God, that is like that is such a privilege yeah. to have." And it, and it has, I think, made me just like you can't. I feel very grateful for that experience because it's made me sort of think so much more carefully about, um, yeah, just about that process and choices when it comes to language and and all of those things and sort of not having this is not to say I always succeed at this but trying to avoid like not having like baggy sentences yeah. not repeating something that doesn't really mean anything yeah. and like I yeah it's def- it was definitely a really great education mm, for sure um, can I ask what if you can talk about anything that you're working on at the moment yeah so I did this project which is sort of an ongoing project um which I did a residency last year um a photo museum in Paris called Le Mep, um, which is like their big sort of photo space. And it was kind of my dream project. And it's always like a treat when you get, uh, you probably know this feeling, you know, when you're freelance, trying to get any project off the ground is like completely impossible. (laughs) And like, sometimes things come to you and it's like a really nice feeling, but you usually like a big project, trying to get someone to like give you the time and resource and, support to do that is just really yeah. difficult so I had this really weird idea for a project which is not weird at all I think it actually makes complete sense but I just when I had it I was like no one's ever going to put any time into this which was I was reading Annie Erno, yeah. who now um is I mean she, she's always been very acclaimed but is getting even more attention which is very deserved because she won the Nobel yeah. Prize yeah. in Literature this year but I was reading some of her work um and I was reading a book called Exteriors which is not a particularly well-known book of hers um but it's one where she it has been translated into English Fitzcarraldo published it but it's not like you know the years or simple passion where there's sort of 
much more of kind of a discussion around it. Exteriors is, a, is an odd little book where she observes things that she sees in and around the town that she lives in, on the outskirts of Paris. Um, and she makes these observations over the course of seven years. It's like people she sees on the train, in the supermarket, just scenes of everyday life. And at the start mm. of the book, she writes about how she's trying to write as if she's a photographer. Mm. And she talks about the kind of qualities that photography has. And she uses this word inaccessible. Mm. And to me, she was talking about a certain sort of like, I guess, a lack of moral judgment, like an ability to create a memory of something without having to kind of analyze or explain or or theorize in any Mm. way. And I remember when I was reading the book, thinking like someone should exhibit these in a photo museum like they are photographs. Mm. So that was my idea. And then I thought, well, actually, it'd be really interesting to treat these texts as photographs and to kind of place them alongside photography. Um, So I sort of went down this kind of, I had this idea for a project. I had no idea what it was going to be. So I emailed the team at the Met and said, can I come and do some research? Because I knew that they had a massive collection of photography. Um, And they very kindly um, invited me to do a residency because they were starting a curatorial residency anyway. So I went out to Paris for a month and I spent time in their collection and I treated Annie's text like they were photographs and I sort of found this about 25 other photographers that I felt like had a sort of synergy with her writing and Annie was actually like I was such so privileged to meet her she was generous with her time and I think she she's really interested in photography she writes it's a theme in all of her books quite easy to miss I think if you're not um if you're not sort of looking for it, but, you know, even in the years, like the first sentence of the years is all the images will disappear. And she describes kind of scenes from Mm. films. She describes things in a very visual way. And she has written a book um, about photos, which hasn't been translated into English. So it's not so well known over here. Um, So then I did that residency and, and to get to the point, which was what, what you're working on now, the aim is to turn that research into some form of project. Um, be it an exhibition or a book so that's sort of happening at the moment you've written which is amazing for me because I get to like combine these loves which is like literature photo it's kind of that's what I mean when I kind of feel like like pinch myself every day that I this project is sort of managing to happen because it's it's kind of it's a curatorial project you know I'm working as a curator on it but it involves all these different things and it's 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 great. So I feel really lucky. So I'm, I'm sort of in the stage of researching how we would turn that into a physical exhibition and potentially some form of sort of publication that would sit alongside the exhibition, some kind of exhibition catalogue. That sounds like a dream, a dream project. Like, from what I know of your career, I'm like, well, that makes total sense. <laughs> Love that for you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really nice one. I feel, I feel really lucky. I'd just love to know, um, what well, sort of like how do you how do you make time for reading or how much time do you make for it? How do you fit it in? Because I think people really struggle to like even know. Well, they could just not look at their phones, but you know what I'm saying. I think people are interested in other people's reading routines. Is it something you do every day, or how does it differ when you're researching versus reading for pleasure? Uh, I really struggle with this. I I think I don't read anywhere near as much as I would like, and I find I often feel quite intimidated by how well-read other people yeah. are. I, I think it is something that I have a slight chip on my shoulder about because going way back to your early questions when you asked about, like, school and upbringing and, like, where I grew up, like, I, I really sort of didn't have a clear idea of sort of what I wanted to do with my life, as, as I mentioned. So I didn't actually even do English A-level. You need help. I stopped it, GCSE. <laughs> Which So I just... It's, it just had massive gaps yeah. in my knowledge. And... I didn't like a lot of the classics that people have read if they do like English for A-level or English at university, which is kind of, it's not the only path, but it's a path that a lot of writers take. I just haven't read those. So I feel quite embarrassed often. Um, But with, I mean, I I try and make sure that I'm always reading for pleasure because I got in a really, really negative habit where I realised every book I was reading I was sort of all that was going through my head when I was reading it was like, could I write this? Is that a better sentence than I could have written? How come this get pu- got published? I wonder what, like, and mm. I was thinking like just comparing myself all the time. Um, so I sort of had to really stop doing that. And part of the way that I did that was through going and reading some older yeah. stuff, just like, cause I think when you read a lot of contemporary fiction, it, it, it can be very 
it's a bit of a busman's yeah. holiday if you're a if you're a Absolutely. racer. Um, but I, I I do think like I don't read every day. There's days where I'm like busy. I'm trying to finish something off. Like got to like I don't know do stuff at home and like I just don't have time to read. And like I think I think it's really easy to really beat yourself up about that. But I try and sort of be. Um, try and be understanding of myself while also maintaining the belief which has been borne out for me in all my experience that the only way to be a good writer is to read a lot so I do I do try is Um, there anything that you've read recently that you sort of particularly um felt inspired or sort of like had any sort of impact on you hmm, that's a really good question even if it's Um, an article or you know long form or anything I think I've been rereading, I mentioned her already, but I've been rereading, after she died, I started rereading the um, Diana and Nikon book about photography, which Janet Malcolm mm. wrote. I think that that has had like a massive yeah. impact on on me. Um, it's just brilliant and intelligent and the way she sort of makes these really sort of like um, skewering comments about kind of like morality and society through the way that she looks at different photographers' works. So that's been a big, had a big impact. And I would say Annie, Annie's writing, Annie Erno's writing has had a massive impact for me. I think just in a, a completely different way. I think it's had a big impact on a lot of female, young female writers in terms of this thing about confessional writing. Right. Whereas for me, it's had like a completely opposite um interests I found it fascinating to look at someone who can write so creatively about visuals which is like a completely yeah. different taking I'm like clearly yeah, yeah. you're um, like looking at a completely different angle <laughs> but that's the beauty of it right way, that's that- the beauty of it everyone takes something different from it like as you said you're sort of scanning your, your your brain picks up on the references to imagery because you're kind of always in that dualistic way of lo- looking at the world flipping between and I guess you pick up on that in her work I'm sure other people do. I don't mean I don't mean that sound like I've like No, don't worry. I made the statement. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I made I made that that statement on your behalf. Sorry. <laughs> um is there a book that you'd recommend to any everyone? Perhaps you've kind of already covered that, but is is there any other book that you sort of like always tell people to pick up? Oh my god, there's there are so many. I think like <laughs> There's one that I'm kind of embarrassed about, but it is the best book in the world, in my opinion. But it's such a cliche because everyone loves it. And it's also a lot of people think it's kind of bad. But I remember reading Donna Tartt's The Secret History when I was at Oxford and being completely kind of overpowered by her ability to conjure like basically people I knew, but in her writing and like the, the way that I could just see myself and my friends and I think, you know, there was something about she's writing about the sort of awfulness and kind of cruelty of these elite institutions and sort of the the amorality of some of those spaces. So it felt kind of like quite in keeping with some of the experiences I was having. But it's a book that I mean, when I reread it now, I, I sort of feel ashamed of how much I loved it because I I don't connect with it in the same way. But I think, you know, sometimes it's really good to remember that some, why something really... It's like, you know, when you have a tattoo... Well, I don't know if I, don't have I, have t- I have a tattoo. And I had it when I was like 20, I don't know, 21, 22. It's, it's kind of yeah. bad, but it really reminds me of, like, not just who I was at the time, but like my hopes and dreams yeah. and like aspirations and this sort of like, petty embarrassing generic bohemianism that a lot of young people have yeah. where they just think that they are like everything that's happening to them has never happened to anyone else and like that book for me is kind of like what, what like, is the tattoo of it, can it i just, ask now i'm in tune. <laughs> it's not it's not actually that bad it's so it's under yeah. my boob on this side and it's like a line and then there's a little sailboat like sailing it's like a, it's like just like a bad nautical tattoo <laughs> um which is fine i, I actually do think one women, bad tattoo but... is quite chic i think it's i think yeah so. it's like you know i think it's good to it's it's a sign that you were you were living a little and you were willing you know like just like something like a chic person wearing one ugly thing can make it chic like i think having one bad tattoo is like yeah and i'm still making it work you know you never notice your own tattoos as well it's probably like i feel like my boyfriend probably thinks about it a lot more than i do because he like will see it all the time um but yeah i don't know i really like things um 
I mean, that is one of the beauties of the arts, whether it's paintings or music or books, is they remind you of like who you are. They like can sort of evoke these feelings mm. in you of sort of who you once were, but also sort of things you used to feel and feel really strongly and maybe you don't feel anymore. And like, I, I always love that idea of sort of how through life you're kind of a series of different yeah. people. And I quite like things that m- m- make me feel like I'm a past self at yeah. some point. So uh, maybe my recommendation is not to read Donna Tartt's Secret History. It's to reread the the book that makes you or any of your listeners feel that way because I'm sure everyone yeah. has their version or listen yeah, to the song something that maybe now you recognize isn't perhaps the best piece of literature or whatever that you've ever read but really evokes something for you for me it's White Teeth by Zadie Smith you know like even she sort of like is like that book shit <laughs> which it definitely isn't especially for a 21 year old or 22 but you know it, now I read it and I'm like this isn't obviously you know very early work by someone who then went on to become like was and is kind of a genius but I I can see why she has takes issue with it but I I love it because I just remember how it made me feel when I read it which was that it totally captured London and as I knew it when I was growing up in it and it now feels like a different city so it's like accessing it in that way Mm. anyway before Mm. I indulge in too much more nostalgia thank you so much for making the time to speak to me it was super um interesting it was I mean sadly this is the first time I've chatted to you since the first time I've met you it's on a street in in New York a long what feels like a long time ago but um yeah I really appreciate you making the time and uh I hope I can take you out for a drink in London one day yes please that would be lovely thanks for chatting to me I hope I didn't ramble you didn't it's fine not at all that's a perfect that's what podcasts (laughs) are right recorded ramblings (laughs) but I like listening to them and I really enjoyed listening to you so thanks Lou have a lovely evening and um good luck with all your projects thank you you too